Hercule Poirot receives an urgent message that a man is in danger, and that he must come at once. But will he arrive too late? Agatha Christie, today on the Classic Tales Podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales Podcast. Thank you for listening. The Classic Tales Podcast is listener-supported. If you enjoy listening to the Classic Tales, please consider becoming a supporting member. It helps support the podcast, and it's a great way to build out your library of classics. By making a monthly donation of just $5, you'll receive a corresponding thank you code for an $8 discount off any audiobook order. Donate $10 a month or more, and you get a $17 discount. You win, and we get to keep going strong. Go now to ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com and become a member today. We'd like to thank Spotify for being a partnering sponsor. The Hunchback of Notre Dame has now been released in its entirety. If you are a current supporter of the podcast and have not received the email and corresponding download link for the entire audiobook, please send an email to support at thebestaudiobooks.com and I'll get you squared away. Cyber Monday approaches, and I'm working on a special gift in the merchandise store. If you know someone who reads, researches, or studies in rooms, libraries, or labs for extensive periods of time, it sounds like you know an intellectual cave dweller or an erudite troglodyte. Check out my new design in our merchandise store if you have an erudite troglodyte in your life. The design makes a great shirt, coffee mug, or tote bag. I hope you like it. Well, I'll find out this weekend if I happen to win an award from the Society of Voice Arts and Sciences. I'm very excited. And I'll be sure to let you know if any awards come my way. I'll also let you know if one of the many other amazing nominees took home the prize. It's been a thrilling journey, and I'm very humbled to be competing with these amazing narrators and podcasters. This week we will begin a mystery from Agatha Christie that will take us to the end of the year. The Murder on the Links. Hercule Poirot has been portrayed many times on stage, screen, and television. My favorite Poirot is Peter Ustinov, and my favorite Poirot film is Evil Under the Sun. If you haven't seen it, you should check it out. It stars James Mason, Maggie Smith, Diana Rigg, Roddy McDowell, and many others. As a personal note, Scylla and I tore down the set for the drowsy chaperone today. It was such a beautiful show, and the kids really did a great job. I think it's one of our best sets, too. We have a crop of up-and-coming talent in our family, so we have lots of nieces and nephews who are in shows throughout the valley here in Utah. So we'll be traveling up and down, seeing a whole bunch of shows. I don't know how you are, but if I know a kid, a niece, nephew, neighborhood kid that's in a show, I just, I just love it. I just enjoy it. It really can help to cover a multitude of sins if I know somebody in the cast. So, anyway, that's what we'll be doing in the upcoming days and weeks. That's our personal moment. And now, Murder on the Links, Part 1 of 7, by Agatha Christie. Chapter 1 
Chapter 1. A Fellow Traveller I believe that a well-known anecdote exists to the effect that a young writer, determined to make the commencement of his story forcible and original enough to catch and rivet the attention of the most blasé of editors, penned the following sentence. "'Hell!' said the Duchess. Strangely enough, this tale of mine opens in much the same fashion. Only the lady who gave utterance to the exclamation was not a Duchess. It was a day in early June. I had been transacting some business in Paris, and was returning by the morning service to London, where I was still sharing rooms with my old friend, the Belgian ex-detective Hercule Poirot. The Calais Express was singularly empty. In fact, my own compartment held only one other traveller. I had made a somewhat hurried departure from the hotel, and was busy assuring myself that I had duly collected all my traps, when the train started. Until then I had hardly noticed my companion, but I was now violently recalled to the fact of her existence. Jumping up from her seat, she let down the window and stuck her head out, withdrawing it a moment later with the brief and forcible ejaculation, HELL! Now I am old-fashioned. A woman, I consider, should be womanly. I have no patience with the modern neurotic girl who jazzes from morning to night, smokes like a chimney, and uses language which would make a Billingsgate fishwoman blush. I looked up now, frowning slightly, into a pretty, impudent face, surmounted by a rakish little red hat. A thick cluster of black curls hid each ear. I judged that she was little more than seventeen, but her face was covered with powder, and her lips were quite impossibly scarlet. Nothing abashed, she returned my glance, and executed an expressive grimace. "'Dear me, we've shocked the kind gentleman,' she observed to an imaginary audience. "'I apologise for my language, most unladylike and all that, but, oh, Lord, there's reason enough for it. Do you know I've lost my only sister?' "'Really?' I said politely. "'How unfortunate!' "'He disapproves,' remarked the lady. "'He disapproves utterly of me and my sister.' which last is unfair, because he hasn't seen her. I opened my mouth, but she forestalled me. Say no more. Nobody loves me. I shall go into the garden and eat worms. Boo-hoo! I am crushed. She buried herself behind a large comic French paper. In a minute or two I saw her eyes stealthily peeping at me over the top. In spite of myself I could not help smiling, and in a minute she had tossed the paper aside and had burst into a merry peal of laughter. "'I knew you weren't such a mutt as you looked,' she cried. Her laughter was so infectious that I could not help joining in, though I hardly cared for the word mutt. The girl was certainly all that I most disliked, but that was no reason why I should make myself ridiculous by my attitude. I prepared to unbend. After all, she was decidedly pretty. "'There, now we're friends.' declared the minx. Say you're sorry about my sister. I am desolated. That's a good boy. Let me finish. I was going to add that, although I am desolated, I can manage to put up with her absence very well. I made a little bow. But this most unaccountable of damsels frowned and shook her head. Cut it out. I prefer the dignified disapproval stunt. Oh, your face! 
"'Not one of us,' it said. "'And you were right there, though, mind you, "'it's pretty hard to tell nowadays. "'It's not everyone who can distinguish "'between a demi and a duchess. "'There you go, I believe I've shocked you again. "'You've been dug out of the backwoods, you have. "'Not that I mind that. "'We could do with a few more of your sort. "'I just hate a fellow who gets fresh. "'It makes me mad.' "'She shook her head vigorously. "'What do you like when you're mad?' "'I inquired with a smile. "'A regular little devil! "'Don't care what I say or what I do either. "'I nearly did a chap in once. "'Yes, really. "'He'd have deserved it, too. "'Italian blood I've got. "'I shall get into trouble one of these days.' "'Well,' I begged, "'don't get mad with me. "'I shan't. "'I like you. "'Did the first moment I set eyes on you, "'but you looked so disapproving "'that I never thought we should make friends. "'Well, we have.' "'Tell me something about yourself. "'I'm an actress. "'No, not the kind you're thinking of, "'lunching at the Savoy, covered with jewellery, "'and with their photograph in every paper "'saying how much they love Madame So-and-So's face cream. "'I've been on the board since I was a kid of six, "'tumbling.' "'I beg your pardon,' I said, puzzled. "'Haven't you seen child acrobats?' "'Oh, I understand. "'I'm American-born, but I've spent most of my life in England.' "'We've got a new show now.' "'We?' "'My sister and I. "'A sort of song and dance and a bit of patter, "'and a dash of the old business thrown in. "'It's quite a new idea, and it hits them every time. "'There's to be money in it.' "'My new acquaintance leaned forward "'and discoursed volubly, "'a great many of her terms being quite unintelligible to me. "'Yet I found myself evincing an increasing interest in her. "'She seemed such a curious mixture of child and woman.' Though perfectly worldly-wise and able, as she expressed it, to take care of herself, there was yet something curiously ingenuous in her single-minded attitude towards life, and her whole-hearted determination to make good. This glimpse of a world unknown to me was not without its charm, and I enjoyed seeing her vivid little face light up as she talked. We passed through Amiens. The name awakened many memories— my companion seemed to have an intuitive knowledge of what was in my mind. Thinking of the war? I nodded. You were through it, I suppose? Pretty well. I was wounded once, and after the sum they invalided me out altogether. I had a half-fledged army job for a bit. I'm a sort of private secretary now to an MP. My, that's brainy. No, it isn't. There's really awfully little to do. Usually a couple of hours every day sees me through. It's dull work, too. In fact, I don't know what I should do if I hadn't got something to fall back upon. Don't say you collect bugs. No. I share rooms with a very interesting man. He's a Belgian, an ex-detective. He's set up as a private detective in London, and he's doing extraordinarily well. He is really a very marvellous little man. Time and again he has proved to be right where the official police have failed. My companion listened with widening eyes. "'Isn't that interesting now? I just adore crime. I go to all the mysteries on the movies, and when there's a murder on, I just devour the papers.' "'Do you remember the Styles case?' I asked. "'Let me see. Was that the old lady who was poisoned? Somewhere down in Essex?' I nodded. "'That was Poirot's first big case. Undoubtedly, but for him, the murderer would have escaped scot-free.' It was the most wonderful bit of detective work. Warming to my subject, I ran over the heads of the affair, 
working up to the triumphant and unexpected denouement. The girl listened spellbound. In fact, we were so absorbed that the train drew into Calais station before we realized it. My goodness gracious me, cried my companion. Where's my powder puff? She proceeded to bedaub her face liberally, and then applied a stick of lip salve to her lips, observing the effect in a small pocket glass, and betraying not the faintest sign of self-consciousness. I say, I hesitated, I dare say it's cheek on my part, but why do all that sort of thing? The girl paused in her operations, and stared at me with undisguised surprise. It isn't as though you weren't so pretty that you can afford to do without it, I said stammeringly. My dear boy, I've got to do it. All the girls do. Think I want to look like a little frump up from the country? She took one last look in the mirror, smiled approval, and put it and her vanity box away in her bag. That's better. Keeping up appearances is a bit of a fag, I grant, but if a girl respects herself, it's up to her not to let herself get slack. To this essentially moral sentiment, I had no reply. A point of view makes a great difference. I secured a couple of porters, and we alighted on the platform. My companion held out her hand. Goodbye, and I'll mind my language better in the future. Oh, but surely you'll let me look after you on the boat. Mayn't be on the boat. I've got to see whether that sister of mine got aboard after all anywhere. But thanks all the same. Oh, but we're going to meet again, surely. I... I hesitated. I want to meet your sister. We both laughed. That's real nice of you. I'll tell her what you say. But I don't fancy we'll meet again. You've been very good to me on the journey, especially after I cheeked you as I did. But what your face expressed first is quite true. I'm not your kind. And that brings trouble. I know that well enough. Her face changed. For the moment all the light-hearted gaiety died out of it. It looked angry, revengeful. So, good-bye, she finished in a lighter tone. Aren't you even going to tell me your name? I cried as she turned away. She looked over her shoulder. A dimple appeared in each cheek. She was like a lovely picture by Greuze. Cinderella! she said, and laughed. But little did I think when and how I should see Cinderella again. Chapter 2 An Appeal for Help It was five minutes past nine when I entered our joint sitting-room for breakfast on the following morning. My friend, Poirot, exact to the minute as usual, was just tapping the shell of his second egg. He beamed upon me as I entered. You have slept well, yes? You have recovered from the crossing so terrible? It is a marvel almost you are exact this morning. Uh, pardon, but your tie is not symmetrical. Permit that I arrange him. Elsewhere, I have described Hercule Poirot. An extraordinary little man. Height, five feet four inches. Egg-shaped head, carried a little to one side eyes that shone green when he was excited, stiff military moustache, air of dignity immense. He was neat and dandified in appearance. For neatness of any kind he had an absolute passion. To see an ornament set crooked, or a speck of dust, or a slight disarray in one's attire, was torture to the little man, until he could ease his feelings by remedying the matter. 
Order and method were his gods. He had a certain disdain for tangible evidence, such as footprints and cigarette ash, and would maintain that, taken by themselves, they would never enable a detective to solve a problem. Then he would tap his egg-shaped head with absurd complacency, and remark with great satisfaction, "'The true work, it is done from within. "'The little grey cells. "'Remember always the little grey cells, mon ami.' "'I slipped into my seat, and remarked idly, in answer to Poirot's greeting, "'that an hour's sea passage from Calais to Dover "'could hardly be dignified by the epithet terrible.' "'Poirot waved his egg-spoon in vigorous refutation of my remark. "'Dah, too!' If for an hour one experiences sensations and emotions of the most terrible, one has lived many hours. Does not one of your English poets say that time is counted not by hours, but by heartbeats? I fancy Browning was referring to something more romantic than seasickness, though. Because he was an Englishman, an islander to whom La Manche was nothing. Oh, you English, with nous autres it is different. Figure to yourself that a lady of my acquaintance at the beginning of the war fled to Ostend. There she had a terrible crisis of the nerves, impossible to escape further except by crossing the sea. And she had a horror. Mais une horreur of the sea. What was she to do? Daily les Boches were drawing nearer. Imagine to yourself the terrible situation. What did she do? I inquired curiously. Fortunately, her husband was en pratique. He was also very calm. The crisis of the nerves, they affected him not. Il a imploté simplement. Naturally, when he reached England, she was prostrate. But she still breathed. Poirot shook his head seriously. I composed my face as best I could. Suddenly he stiffened and pointed a dramatic finger at the toast-rack. "'Ah, par exemple, c'est trop fort,' he cried. "'What is it? This piece of toast. You remark him not?' He whipped the offender out of the rack and held it up for me to examine. "'Is it square? No. Is it a triangle? Again, no. Is it even round? No. Is it of any shape remotely pleasing to the eye?' "'What symmetry have we here? None!' "'It's cut from a cottage loaf,' I explained soothingly. Poirot threw me a withering glance. "'What an intelligence has my friend Hastings!' he exclaimed sarcastically. "'Comprehend you not that I have forbidden such a loaf? "'A loaf, haphazard and shapeless, that no baker should permit himself to bake!' I endeavoured to distract his mind. "'Any interesting come by the post?' Poirot shook his head with a dissatisfied air. I have not yet examined my letters, but nothing of interest arrives nowadays. The great criminals, the criminals of method, they do not exist. The cases I have been employed upon lately were banal to the last degree. In verity, I am reduced to recovering lost lapdogs for fashionable ladies. The last problem that presented any interest was that intricate little affair of the Yardley Diamond, and that was how many months ago, my friend? He shook his head despondently, and I roared with laughter. Cheer up, Wero. The luck will change. Open your letters, for all you know there may be a great case looming on the horizon. 
Poirot smiled, and taking up his neat little letter-opener, with which he opened his correspondence, he slit the tops of the several envelopes that lay by his plate. A bill, another bill, it is that I grow extravagant in my old age. Aha! A note from Jacques. Yes? Pricked up my ears. The Scotland Yard inspector had more than once introduced us to an interesting case. He merely thanks me in his fashion for a little point in the Aberystwyth case on which I was able to set him right. I am delighted to have been of service to him. How does he thank you? I asked curiously, for I knew my job. He is kind enough to say that I am a wonderful sport for my age, and that he was glad to have had the chance of letting me in on the case. That was so typical of Jab that I could not forbear a chuckle. Poirot continued to read his correspondence placidly. A suggestion that I should give a lecture to our local Boy Scouts? The Countess of Fofanoch will be obliged if I will call and see her— "'Another lapdog, without doubt. "'And now for the last. "'Ah!' "'I looked up, quick to notice the change of tone. "'Poirot was reading attentively. "'In a minute he tossed the sheet over to me. "'This is out of the ordinary, mon ami. "'Read for yourself.' "'The letter was written on a foreign type of paper, "'in a bold, characteristic hand. "'Villa Genevieve, Merlonville-sur-Mer, France. "'Dear sir,' I am in need of the services of a detective, and, for reasons which I will give you later, do not wish to call in the official police. I have heard of you from several quarters, and all reports go to show that you are not only a man of decided ability, but one who also knows how to be discreet. I do not wish to trust details to the post, but on account of a secret I possess, I go in daily fear of my life. I am convinced that the danger is imminent, and therefore I beg you that you will lose no time in crossing to France. I will send a car to meet you at Calais, if you will wire me when you are arriving. I shall be obliged if you will drop all cases you have on hand, and devote yourself solely to my interests. I am prepared to pay any compensation necessary. I shall probably need your services for a considerable period of time— as it may be necessary for you to go out to Santiago, where I spent several years of my life, I should be content for you to name your own fee, assuring you once more that the matter is urgent. Yours faithfully, P.T. Renault. Below the signature was a hastily scrawled line, almost illegible. For God's sake, come! I handed the letter back with quickened pulses. At last, I said— "'Here is something distinctly out of the ordinary.' "'Yes, indeed,' said Poirot, meditatively. "'You will go, of course,' I continued. "'Poirot nodded. He was thinking deeply. "'Finally he seemed to make up his mind, and glanced up at the clock. "'His face was very grave. "'See you, my friend. There is no time to lose. "'The Continental Express leaves Victoria at eleven o'clock. "'Do not agitate yourself. There is plenty of time.' We can allow ten minutes for discussion. You accompany me, Nespa? Well, you told me yourself that your employer needed you not for the next few weeks. Oh, that's all right. But this Mr. Renault hints strongly that his business is private. Ta ta ta. I will manage with Monsieur Renault. By the way, I seem to know the name. There's a well known South American millionaire fellow, 
His name's Renault. I don't know whether it could be the same, but without doubt. That explains the mention of Santiago. Santiago is in Chile, and Chile it is in South America. Oh, but we progress finely. Dear me, Poirot, I said, my excitement rising. I smell some goodly shackles in this. If we succeed, we shall make our fortunes. Do not be too sure of that, my friend. A rich man and his money are not so easily parted. Me? I have seen a well-known millionaire trump out a tramful of people to seek for a dropped halfpenny. I acknowledge the wisdom of this. In any case, continued Poirot, it is not the money which attracts me here. Certainly it will be pleasant to have Carl Blanche in our investigations. One can be sure that way of wasting no time. But it is something a little bizarre in this problem which arouses my interest. You remarked the postscript. How did it strike you? I considered. Clearly he wrote the letter, keeping himself well in hand, but at the moment his self-control snapped, and on the impulse of the moment he scrawled those four desperate words. But my friend shook his head energetically. You are in error. See you not that while the ink of the signature is nearly black, that of the postscript is quite pale? Well, I said, puzzled. Mon Dieu, mon ami, but use your little grisels. Is it not obvious? Monsieur Renaud wrote his letter. Without blotting it, he reread it carefully. Then, not on impulse, but deliberately, he added those last words and blotted the sheet. But why? Parbleu! So that it should produce the effect upon me that it has upon you. What? Mais oui. To make sure of my coming. He reread the letter and was dissatisfied. It was not strong enough. He paused, and then added softly, his eyes shining with that green light that always betokened inward excitement. And so, mon ami, since that postscript was added, not on impulse but soberly, in cold blood, the urgency is very great, and we must reach him as soon as possible. Merlinville, I murmured thoughtfully. I've heard of it, I think. Poirot nodded. It is a quiet little place, but chic. It lies about midway between Boulogne and Calais. It is rapidly becoming the fashion. Rich English people who wish to be quiet are taking it up. Monsieur Renault has a house in England, I suppose. Yes, in Rutland Gate, as far as I remember. Also a big place in the country, somewhere in Hertfordshire. But I really know very little about him. He doesn't do much in a social way. I believe he has large South American interests in the city, and has spent most of his life out in Chile and the Argentina. Well, we shall hear all details from the man himself. Come, let us pack. A small suitcase each, and then a taxi to Victoria. And the Countess? I inquired with a smile. Ah, je m'en fiche. That case is certainly not interesting. Why so sure of that? Because in that case she would have come, not written. A woman cannot wait. Always remember that, Hastings. Eleven o'clock saw our departure from Victoria on our way to Dover. Before starting, Poirot had dispatched a telegram to Mr. Renault, giving the time of our arrival at Calais. I'm surprised you haven't invested in a few bottles of some seasick remedy, Poirot, I observed maliciously, as I recalled our conversation at breakfast. My friend was anxiously scanning the weather, returned a reproachful face upon me. 
Is it that you have forgotten the method most excellent of Levergier? His system, I practice it always. One balances oneself, if you remember, turning his head from left to right, breathing in and out, counting six between each breath. Hmm, I demurred. You'll be rather tired of balancing yourself and counting six by the time you get to Santiago, or Buenos Aires, or wherever it is you land. Kelide, you do not figure to yourself that I shall go to Santiago? Mr. Renault suggests it in his letter. He did not know the methods of Hercule Poirot. I do not run to and fro, making journeys, and agitating myself. My work is done from within. Here. He tapped his forehead significantly. As usual, this remark roused my argumentative faculty. It is all very well, Poirot, but I think you are falling into the habit of despising certain things too much. A fingerprint has led sometimes to the arrest and conviction of a murderer, and has, without doubt, hanged more than one innocent man, remarked Poirot dryly. But surely the study of fingerprints and footprints, cigarettage, different kinds of mud— and other clues that compromise the minute observation of details, all these are of vital importance. But certainly, I have never said otherwise. The trained observer, the expert, without doubt he is useful. But the others, the Hercule Poirots, they are above the experts. To them, the experts bring the facts. Their business is the method of the crime." its logical deduction, the proper sequence and order of the facts. Above all, the true psychology of the case. You have hunted the fox, yes? I have hunted a bit now and again, I said, rather bewildered by this abrupt change of subject. Why, eh bien, this hunting of the fox, you need the dogs, no? Hounds, I corrected gently. Yes, of course. But yet, Poirot wagged his finger at me, you did not descend from your horse and run along the ground, smelling with your nose and uttering loud how-hows? In spite of myself, I laughed immoderately. Poirot nodded in a satisfied manner. So, you leave the work of the damned hounds to the hounds. Yet, you demand that I, Hercule Poirot, should make myself ridiculous by lying down, possibly on damp grass, to study hypothetical footprints, and should scoop up cigarette ash when I do not know one kind from the other. Remember the Plymouth Express mystery. The good Jap departed to make a survey of the railway line. When he returned, I, without having moved from my apartments, was able to tell him exactly what he had found. So you are of the opinion that Jap wasted his time? Not at all, since his evidence confirmed my theory. But I should have wasted my time if I had gone. It is the same with the so-called experts. Remember the handwriting testimony in the Cavendish case. One counsel's questioning brings out testimony as to the resemblances. The defense brings evidence to show dissimilarity. All the language is very technical, and the result? What we all knew in the first place. The writing was very like that of John Cavendish, and the psychological mind is faced with the question, why? Because it was actually his, 
or because someone wished us to think it was his? I answered that question, mon ami, and answered it correctly. And Poirot, having effectually silenced, if not convinced me, leaned back with a satisfied air. On the boat, I knew better than to disturb my friend's solitude. The weather was gorgeous, and the sea as smooth as the proverbial mill-pond. So I was hardly surprised to hear that Lavergier's method had once more justified itself when a smiling Poirot joined me on disembarking at Calais. A disappointment was in store for us, as no car had been sent to meet us. But Poirot put this down to his telegram having been delayed in transit. "'Since it is carte blanche, we will hire a car,' he said cheerfully, and a few minutes later saw us creaking and jolting along, in the most ramshackle of automobiles that ever plied for hire in the direction of Merlonville. My spirits were at their highest. "'What gorgeous air!' I exclaimed. "'This promises to be a delightful trip. "'For you, yes, for me. "'I have work to do, remember, at our journey's end.' Bah, I said cheerfully, you will discover all, ensure this Mr. Renault's safety, run the would-be assassins to earth, and all will finish in a blaze of glory. You are sanguine, my friend. Yes, I feel absolutely assured of success. Are you not the one and only Hercule Poirot? But my little friend did not rise to the bait. He was observing me gravely. You are what the Scotch people call Fay Hastings. It presages disaster. Nonsense. At any rate, you do not share my feelings. No. But I am afraid. Afraid of what? I do not know. But I have a premonition. A je ne sais quoi. He spoke so gravely that I was impressed in spite of myself. I have a feeling, he said slowly, that this is going to be a big affair. A long, troublesome problem that will not be easy to work out. I would have questioned him further, but we were just coming into the little town of Merlonville, and we slowed up to inquire the way to the Villa Genevieve. Straight on, monsieur, through the town. The Villa Genevieve is about half a mile to the other side. You cannot miss it. A big villa overlooking the sea. We thanked our informant and drove on, leaving the town behind. A fork in the road brought us to a second halt. A peasant was trudging toward us, and we waited for him to come up to us in order to ask the way again. There was a tiny villa standing right by the road, but it was too small and dilapidated to be the one we wanted. As we waited, the gate of it swung open, and a girl came out. The peasant was passing us now, and the driver leaned forward from his seat and asked for direction. "'The Villa Genevieve!' "'Just a few steps up this road to the right, monsieur. "'You could see it were it not for the curve.' "'The chauffeur thanked him and started the car again. "'My eyes were fascinated by the girl who still stood, "'with one hand on the gate, watching us. "'I am an admirer of beauty, "'and he was one whom nobody could have passed without remark. "'Very tall, with the proportions of a young goddess.' her uncovered golden head gleaming in the sunlight. I swore to myself that she was one of the most beautiful girls I had ever seen. As we swung up the rough road, I turned my head to look after her. "'By Jove, Poirot!' I exclaimed. 
Did you see that young goddess? Poirot raised his eyebrows. Ça commence, he murmured. Already you have seen a goddess. But hang it all, wasn't she? Possibly. I did not remark the fact. Surely you noticed her? Mon ami, two people rarely see the same thing. You, for instance, saw a goddess. I... He hesitated. Yes? I saw only a girl with anxious eyes, said Poirot gravely. But at that moment we drew up at a big green gate, and simultaneously we both uttered an exclamation. Before it stood an imposing sergeant de ville. He held up his hand to bar our way. You cannot pass, messieurs. But we wish to see Mr. Renault, I cried. We have an appointment. This is his villa, isn't it? Yes, monsieur, but... Poirot leaned forward. But what? Monsieur Renault was murdered this morning. Chapter 3 At the Villa Genevieve In a moment, Poirot had leapt from the car, his eyes blazing with excitement. He caught the man by the shoulder. What is that you say? Murdered? When? How? The sergeant de ville drew himself up. I cannot answer any questions, monsieur. True, I comprehend. Poirot reflected for a minute. The commissary of police, he is without doubt within? Yes, monsieur. Poirot took out a card and scribbled a few words on it. Voila, will you have the goodness to see that this card is sent in to the commissary at once? The man took it, and turning his head over his shoulder, whistled. In a few seconds a comrade joined him, and was handed Poirot's message. There was a wait of some minutes, and then a short, stout man with a huge moustache came bustling down the gate. The sergeant de ville saluted and stood aside. "'My dear Monsieur Poirot,' cried the newcomer, "'I am delighted to see you. Your arrival is most opportune.' Poirot's face had lighted up. "'Monsieur Bex, this is indeed a pleasure.' He turned to me. This is an English friend of mine, Captain Hastings, Monsieur Lucien Bex. The commissary and I bowed to each other ceremoniously. Then Monsieur Bex turned once more to Poirot. Mon vieux, I have not seen you since 1909, that time in Ostend. I heard that you had left the force. So I have. I run a private business in London. And you say you have information to give that may assist us? Possibly you know it already. You are aware that I had been sent for? No. By whom? The dead man. It seems he knew an attempt was going to be made on his life. Unfortunately, he sent for me too late. Sacre tonnerre! ejaculated the Frenchman. So he foresaw his own murder? That upsets our theories considerably. But come inside. He held the gate open, and we commenced walking towards the house. Monsieur Bex continued to talk. The examining magistrate, Monsieur Rotet, must hear of this at once. He has just finished examining the scene of the crime, and is about to begin his interrogations. A charming man, you will like him, most sympathetic. Original in his methods, but an excellent judge. When was the crime committed? asked Poirot. The body was discovered this morning about nine o'clock. Madame Renault's evidence, and that of the doctors, goes to show that the death must have occurred about two a.m., 
But enter, I pray of you. We had arrived at the steps which led up to the front door of the villa. In the hall another sergeant de ville was sitting. He rose at the sight of the commissary. Where is Monsieur Rote now? inquired the latter. In the salon, monsieur. Monsieur Bex opened a door to the left of the hall, and we passed in. Monsieur Rote and his clerk were sitting at a big round table. They looked up as we entered. The commissary introduced us and explained our presence. Monsieur Rote, the juge d'instruction, was a tall gaunt man with piercing dark eyes and a neatly cut grey beard, which he had a habit of caressing as he talked. Standing by the mantelpiece was an elderly man, with slightly stooping shoulders, who was introduced to us as Dr. Durand. Most extraordinary, remarked Monsieur Rote, as the commissary finished speaking. You have the letter here, monsieur? Poirot handed it to him, and the magistrate read it. Hmm. He speaks of a secret. What a pity he was not more explicit. We are much indebted to you, monsieur Poirot. I hope you will do us the honor of assisting us in our investigations. Or are you obliged to return to London? Monsieur le juge, I propose to remain. I did not arrive in time to prevent my client's death, but I feel myself bound in honor to discover the assassin. The magistrate bowed. These sentiments do you honor. Also, without doubt, Madame Renaud will wish to retain your services. We are expecting Monsieur Giraud from the Sûreté in Paris any moment, and I am sure that you and he will be able to give each other mutual assistance in your investigations. In the meantime, I hope that you will do me the honor to be present at my interrogations, and I need hardly say that if there is any assistance you require, it is at your disposal. I thank you, monsieur. You will comprehend that at present I am completely in the dark. I know nothing whatever. Monsieur Rote nodded to the commissary, and the latter took up the tale. This morning, the old servant Francoise, on descending to start her work, found the front door ajar. Feeling a momentary alarm as to burglars, she looked into the dining room, but seeing the silver was safe, she thought no more about it, concluding that her master had, without doubt, risen early and gone for a stroll. Pardon, monsieur, for interrupting, but was that a common practice of his? No, it was not. But old Francoise has the common idea, as regards the English, that they are mad and liable to do the most unaccountable things at any moment. Going to call her mistress as usual, a younger maid, Leonie, was horrified to discover her gagged and bound, and almost at the same moment news was brought that Monsieur Renault's body had been discovered, stone dead, stabbed in the back. Where? That is one of the most extraordinary features of the case. Monsieur Poirot? The body was lying, face downwards, in an open grave. What? Yes. The pit was freshly dug, just a few yards outside the boundary of the villa grounds. And he had been dead how long? Dr. Girard answered this. I examined the body this morning at ten o'clock. Death must have taken place at least seven and possibly ten hours previously.
Hmm. That fixes it at between midnight and three a.m. Exactly. And Madame Renault's evidence places it at after two p.m., which narrows the field still further. Death must have been instantaneous, and naturally could not have been self-inflicted. Poirot nodded, and the commissary resumed. Madame Renault was hastily freed from the cords that bound her by the horrified servants. She was in a terrible condition of weakness, almost unconscious from the pain of her bonds. It appears that two masked men entered the bedroom, gagged and bound her, whilst forcibly abducting her husband. This we know at second hand from the servants. On hearing the tragic news, she fell at once into an alarming state of agitation. On arrival, Dr. Durand immediately prescribed a sedative, and we have not yet been able to question her. Without doubt, she will awake more calm and be equal to bearing the strain of the interrogation. The commissary paused. And the inmates of the house, monsieur? There is old Françoise, the housekeeper. She lived for many years with the former owners of the village Genevieve. Then there are two young girls, sisters, Denise and Leonie Hulard. Their home is in Marlonville, and they come of the most respectable parents. Then there is the chauffeur, whom Monsieur Renault brought over from England with him. But he is away on a holiday. Finally, there are Madame Renault and her son, Monsieur Jacques Renault. He, too, is away from home at present. Poirot bowed his head. Monsieur Rotet spoke. Marchand! The sergeant de ville appeared. Bring in the woman Françoise. The man saluted and disappeared. In a moment or two, he returned, escorting the frightened Françoise. Your name is Françoise Arichet? Yes, monsieur. You have been a long time in service at the Villa Genevieve? Eleven years with Madame la Vicomtesse. Then, when she sold the villa this spring, I consented to remain on with the English milor. Never did I imagine. The magistrate cut her short. Without doubt, without doubt. Now, Françoise, in this matter of the front door, whose business was it to fasten it at night? Mine, monsieur. Always I saw to it myself. And last night? I fastened it as usual. You are sure of that? I swear to it by the blessed saints, monsieur. What time would that be? The same time as usual. Half past ten, monsieur. What about the rest of the household? Had they gone up to bed? Madame had retired some time before. Denis and Leonie went up with me. Monsieur was still in his study. Then if anyone unfastened the door afterwards, it must have been Monsieur Renaud himself? Francoise shrugged her broad shoulders. What should he do that for? With robbers and assassins passing every minute? A oh, nice idea. Monsieur was not an imbecile. It was not as though he had to let Sir Dame out. The magistrate interrupted sharply. Sir Dame? What lady do you mean? Why, the lady who came to see him. Had the lady been to see him that evening? But yes, monsieur, and many other evenings as well. Who was she? Did you know her? A rather cunning look spread over the woman's face. How should I know who it was? She grumbled. I did not let her in last night. 
Aha! roared the examining magistrate, bringing his hand down with a bang on the table. You will trifle with the police, would you? I demand that you tell me at once the name of this woman who came to visit Monsieur Renault in the evenings. The police. The police, grumbled Francoise. Never did I think that I should be mixed up with the police. But I know well enough who she was. It was Madame de Bray. The commissary uttered an exclamation, and leaned forward as though in utter astonishment. Madame de Bray? From the Villa Marguerite, just down the road? That is what I said, monsieur. Oh, she is a pretty one, Cellula. The old woman tossed her head scornfully. Madame de Bray? murmured the commissary. Impossible. Voila, grumbled Francoise. That is what you get for telling the truth. Not at all, said the examining magistrate soothingly. We are surprised, that is all. Madame de Bray, then, and Monsieur Renaud, they were, uh... He paused delicately. Eh? It was that, without doubt? How should I know? But what will you, monsieur? He was Milot Anglais, très riche, and Madame de Bray? She was poor, that one, and très chic, for all that she lived so quietly with her daughter. Not a doubt of it, she has had her history. She is no longer young, but my foi, I who speak to you have seen the men's heads turn after her as she goes down the street. Besides, lately, she has had more money to spend. All the town knows it. The little economies, they are at an end. And Francoise shook her head with an air of unalterable certainty. Monsieur Rotet stroked his beard reflectively. And Madame Renaud? he asked at length. How did she take this friendship? Francoise shrugged her shoulders. She was most amiable, most polite. One would say she suspected nothing. But all the same, is it not so the heart suffers, monsieur? Day by day I have watched Madame grow paler and thinner. She was not the same woman who arrived here a month ago. Monsieur, too, has changed. He also has had his worries. One could see that he was on the brink of a crisis of the nerves. And who could wonder? With an affair conducted such a fashion, no reticence, no discretion, steal Anglais without doubt. I bounded indignantly in my seat, but the examining magistrate was continuing his questions, undistracted by side issues. You say that Monsieur Renaud had not to let Madame de Bray out. Had she left then? Yes, monsieur. I heard them come out of the study and go to the door. Monsieur said good night and shut the door after her. What time was that? About twenty-five minutes after ten, monsieur. Do you know when Monsieur Renaud went to bed? I heard him come up about ten minutes after we did. The stair creaks so that one hears everyone who goes up and down. And is that all? You heard no sound of disturbance during the night? Nothing whatever, monsieur. Which of the servants came down the first in the morning? I did, monsieur. At once I saw the doors swinging open. 
What about the other downstairs windows? Were they all fastened? Every one of them. There was nothing suspicious or out of place anywhere. Good, Francoise. You can go. The old woman shuffled towards the door. On the threshold, she looked back. I will tell you one thing, monsieur. That Madame Dubray, she is a bad one. Oh, yes, one woman knows about another. She is a bad one. Remember that. And shaking her head sagely, Francoise left the room. Leonie Hulard, called the magistrate. Leonie appeared dissolved in tears and inclined to be hysterical. Monsieur Rotet dealt with her adroitly. Her evidence was mainly concerned with the discovery of her mistress gagged and bound, of which she gave rather an exaggerated account. She, like Francoise, had heard nothing during the night. Her sister, Denise, succeeded her. She agreed that her master had changed greatly of late. Every day he became more and more morose. He ate less. He was always depressed. But Denise had her own theory. Without doubt, it was the mafia he had on his track. Two masked men. Who else could it be? A terrible society, that. It is, of course, possible, said the magistrate smoothly. Now, my girl, was it you who admitted Madame Dubray to the house last night? Not last night, monsieur. The night before. But Francoise has just told us that Madame Dubray was here last night. No, monsieur. A lady did come to see Monsieur Renault last night, but it was not Madame Dubray. Surprised, the magistrate insisted, but the girl held firm. She knew Madame Dubray perfectly by sight. This lady was dark also, but shorter and much younger. Nothing could shake her statement. Have you seen this lady before? Never, monsieur. And then the girl added diffidently, But I think... She was English. English? Yes, monsieur. She asked for monsieur Renault in quite good French, but the accent. One can always tell it, n'est-ce pas? Besides, when they came out of the study, they were speaking in English. Did you hear what they said? Could you understand it, I mean? Me? I speak the English very well, said Denise with pride. The lady was speaking too fast for me to catch what she said, but I heard monsieur's last words as he opened the door for her. She paused, and then repeated carefully and laboriously, Yes, yes, but for God's sake, go now. Yes, yes, but for God's sake, go now, repeated the magistrate. He dismissed Denise, and after a moment or two for consideration, recalled Francoise. To her he propounded the question as to whether she had not made a mistake in fixing the night of Madame Dubray's visit. Francoise, however, proved unexpectedly obstinate. It was last night that Madame Dubray had come. Without a doubt it was she. Denise wished to make herself interesting. Well, I do. So she had cooked up this fine tale about a strange lady, airing her knowledge of English, too. <laughs> Probably Monsieur has never spoken that sentence in English at all, and even if he had, it proved Nothing, for Madame Dubray spoke English perfectly, and generally used that language when talking to Monsieur and Madame Renault. You see, Monsieur Jacques, the son of Monsieur, was usually here, and he spoke the French very badly. 
The magistrate did not insist. Instead, he inquired about the chauffeur, and learned that only yesterday Monsieur Renault had declared that he was not likely to use the car, and that Masters might just as well take a holiday. A perplexed frown was beginning to gather between Poirot's eyes. "'What is it?' I whispered. He shook his head impatiently, and asked a question. "'Pardon, Monsieur Bex, but without doubt Monsieur Renault could drive the car himself?' The commissary looked over at Françoise, and the old woman replied promptly, "'No, monsieur did not drive himself.' Poirot's frown deepened. "'I wish you would tell me what is worrying you,' I said impatiently. "'See you not? In his letter, monsieur Renaud speaks of sending the car for me to Calais.' "'Perhaps he meant a hired car,' I suggested. "'Doubtless that he saw. "'But why hire a car?' when you have one of your own. Why choose yesterday to send away the chauffeur on a holiday, suddenly, at a moment's notice? Was it that for some reason he wanted him out of the way before we arrived? This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you have enjoyed this unabridged production of The Murder on the Links, Part 1 of 7, by Agatha Christie. If you have enjoyed this book, please become a supporting member of the Classic Tales at ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com. You'll find many ways of supporting us, starting at only $5 a month. Each donation comes with a monthly thank you code for expanding your classic audiobook library. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week, and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper.